Hey guys, welcome back to On The Back Bar, joined by me, your host, Christopher Menning. Today's guest was Ivy Mix, here to talk about her new book, Spirits of Latin America, which I have to say was a fantastic read, and the photography is absolutely stunning. We really go into depth about her history, her South America, which has always had a fond part of her heart, and it's helped her to start her own bar, Leander, uh, which has won a number of awards in New York, Brooklyn, and also gave her the focus to make this book. The book goes into the rich culture and history of Latin spirits, separated into three sections, agave, grape and sugarcane. There's a ton of cocktail recipes in there which are also very similar to the recipes she has in her own bar, Leander. We talk about this and also what she's doing right now to help support the restaurant trade during the Covid period. It's a very tough time for everyone, especially the states, but it sounds like she's making some great strides in being able to help people. So I really urge you to listen and see if it can help you. Um, we have a lot of the information in the show notes, so please have a look there. The book is going to be ready for May the 26th, but we do have the pre-order notes uh, in an article on Gastronomy Lifestyle, so you can head over there to have a look. As always, guys, if you like the show, please give us a like, subscribe, uh, join us on Patreon, because that's where our community is going to be focused on. But other than that, enjoy the show and stay safe to all of you. Let's roll the intro. Benjamin Franklin once said, In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar, hosted by Christopher Menning, an industry expert, author, and bartender who's been in the industry for over a decade. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the back bar. This is Christopher Menning. Hey Ivy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time because obviously it's a difficult period for everyone and you've got lots going on with the business, but thanks for being on the show with us. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we know you're currently not in New York. You're actually in your hometown, hold up there. Uh, what's the situation like uh, where you are? Um, well, I'm, like you said, I'm lucky enough to have escaped the epicenter of the United States, which is New York City. Um, and I escaped to my hometown in central Vermont, where isolation is has always been a way of life. <laughs> so it's not so, so unusual. I mean, things are unusual. Like, you know, you go to the grocery store, you put your mask on and, and you have your hand washing and everything. And it's not quite as easy to do normal things like go to the grocery store or anything errand wise, but it's not that different here. So I'm extremely lucky to kind of have reverted back to high school status. I'm, you know, sleeping in my childhood bed and, you know, <laughs> my mom right. makes tea in the morning. And yeah, it's very, it's something else. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear you're doing well and you're safe. It's obviously a very strange time for everyone. We'll definitely talk about it during the show. But um, it'd be great to get, well, to kick off and hear about you and your career history and how you got into the industry. Yeah, great. Let's do it. 
So you started at quite a young age and uh, in quite a different location compared to maybe some other bartenders. That was South America. So could you tell us a bit about the the story of how you ended up there and and your journey? Yeah, for sure. So basically, um, so it's kind of a story, but I'm just going to talk and talk. (laughs) Go for it, please. It's your show. So um, I it actually, ironically, all starts with me being growing up um, where I am right now, um, isolating from COVID. So I grew up in a very, very small town in central Vermont, uh, a little town called Tunbridge, where, and by little, I mean, it's not like a city. I mean, it's like less than a thousand people. Um, very, very small, where everyone kind of looks like me, talks like me, um, essentially different versions of waspiness, European descent uh, type of folk. (laughs) Um, And when I went to university, um, when I was 19, I had, it was, I went to a very, very liberal school where, you know, most schools in the States, we have semesters. So you got a spring term and a fall term. Uh, but for me, I went to a trimester school and in the middle trimester, the winter term, you had to go do field in your work in your field, um, whatever that might be. So you actually had to be outside of, um, of the campus. So I had never really traveled much. I had told my mom, I was like, mom, I have this thing I have to do from late December until March. Um, And I want to leave the country. I've never really left the country. So through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, (laughs) I, yeah, I was, I, I ended up, my mom said, well, I know someone, um, who has like a volunteer operation in Guatemala. Would you have any interest in going there? And I was like, yeah, because my goal was to learn a foreign language. So I hopped in an airplane, went to Guatemala, and I thought I was going to have this like very unique experience of like being the sole white person in the hills and like really cultural immersion of a society I never, I had an idea of where I was going that wasn't um, 100% accurate. Um, Where I ended up going was Antigua, Guatemala in this tiny colonial city that at the time was like a hub for Central American tourism. And, you know, it's colonial. So it's an eight by eight block city. Everything's cobblestone. It's extremely quaint. Um, And it's only 45 minutes away from Guatemala City, which at the time in late 2004, early 2005, um, wasn't the safest city in the world. Um, So people would go fly into Guatemala City and then use Antigua as a hub to go visit the rest of um, the rest of Latin America or the rest of Guatemala. So after a few days of being there, I actually walked into a bar um, because I heard Bob Dylan playing. And Bob Dylan uh, was my very first concert when I was like 10. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah. Bob Dylan drew you Yeah, and I was like, oh, Bob Dylan. And, you know, in my head, I was like, what's Bob Dylan doing playing in Guatemala? And I hadn't realized yet that it was like a total expat community. So I walk in and this Guatemalan guy came up and was like, what do you want? He's like, all the beer and a quesadilla, whatever. And then this gringo comes in and says, like, what are you doing talking to this lady? Like, you know, haha. And I was like, what was happening here? And he sits down. He's, he's like, my name's John. I own this place. Um, I'm from New York. He came up and said, hey, how are you? You should come back tonight. We have live music. 
So that bar uh, is called Cafe No Say. It's still uh, around. And I ended up going to that bar every night and every day for two plus months. Um, And I was young, right? In the United States, we can't drink in bars at 19. Um, But there you could. um, And I wasn't like a freshman face to drinking. You know, I'd been in college. I knew knew how to handle myself. But um, it was really fun to me to be I was, it was for the first time in my life, I was really, really an adult. Um, my friends were adults. All of my friends were like in their forties and fifties. And I was just like, wow, this place is so cool. And then at the end of my time, uh, volunteering in this, um, orphanage, teaching photography and drinking there every day, I was informed that I had a pretty big bill to pay off. Um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I was 19. I couldn't exactly call my mom and be like, mom, I've got a couple thousand dollar bill. Uh, can you help? A couple thousand, but it was over a thousand. I remember. Um, so I was like, Oh, well, you know, maybe I can start working to pay it off. So, uh, I did. And when I made the realization that I could be getting paid to be in the place I was paying to be in for, it was like this revelation. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to start working. So that, you know, kind of fast forwarded to me living part time in Guatemala for the next four years, um, bartending there. Um, I just really fell in love with that place. I would travel from there to other you know, locations. I lived in Argentina. I lived in Peru. I traveled all over Central and South America and then into the Caribbean um, from that first experience. And I bartended the whole time. Then the economy collapsed in 2008. And that the same year I graduated from university, which was extremely inconvenient. <laughs> and um, I moved to New York City to try to, at first I just moved there to try to make it in the art world, um, realized I hated the art world, <laughs> I was like, this, this isn't great. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> right. and then I was bartending to make money and I discovered cocktails. And when I realized I could kind of do so much more with cocktails um, and bartend, which I already loved doing, uh, I was like, I'm going to dedicate myself to this. So I decided not, I got into grad school, decided not to go get my master of fine arts, um, decided to dedicate myself more to the bartending world and you know fast forward many years after that in 2015 um i partnered with my old boss uh and now business partner julie reiner to open up my bar leyenda in in brooklyn um which is a bar that you know celebrates the latin american countries that i have always resonated with and the spirits that come from there and you've had fantastic success with it. Leander has won a number of awards. <laughs> James Beard <laughs> Foundation, Outstanding Bar Program being one of them. Um, I, I can't wait to talk about the bar more. But it seems like South America has always had a big part in your heart, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the first time I went down there, I was, um, you know, young um, and impressionable and relatively sheltered and I remember like walking the first time I got off the airplane and the first time I had to go out and walk around, I just felt very at home. Um, and I felt more comfortable. Um, that, and, um, I've always 
enjoyed speaking Spanish. I feel like when I speak Spanish, I have to really slow down and think about what I'm saying. Um, I'm fluent, but I'm not like, it's not my first language. So I find that the things that I say in Spanish, I really mean, like I, there's a good, big intent <laughs> behind what I'm saying when I'm speaking Spanish. Um, and yeah, it just really resonated with me. And then I tra started traveling all over. I went to Mexico. I went, you know, all over Latin America. And every different place I went, I was really interested in this mix of European influence, essentially the big one being Catholicism, right? And then indigenous populations. There's a real mestizo culture that I was like, this is really interesting. Um, so yeah, when I want to go open the bar, I was like, I must explore yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic. I, I haven't made my way over there yet, but I'm in Asia right now, and I guess I had the same feeling of feeling like home. Yeah, it's fantastic because you're stepping into a new world, and you're you're constantly learning. Um, I'm interested. Where was the place in South America where you really had a hold? Maybe linking to the bartending. Which which bar were you at? Where you thought, wow, this is my home for a while. Well, definitely number one was when I started working. I mean, the first one. I lived the most consistently in Guatemala. Um, and the, I mean, really to be, I bartended a little when I lived in Argentina, but not really. Um, I was in school there. Uh, and it's kind of hard for foreign people to get jobs in Argentina, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's not easy. Oh, really? Um, but so, yeah, in Guatemala, Cafe No Se in Antigua, um, was the bar that I really just fell in love with. And, you know, it was definitely my home for four years. Um, and yeah, I miss it a lot. I haven't been back to Guatemala in, I don't even know, eight years. Oh, so it's been a while then. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, I've kind of, basically I haven't really been back since my bartending career took off. I mean, I guess I went back in the very, very beginning, but I travel, I fly like 150,000 miles. Well, I guess I used to now in the world of COVID, who knows, but <laughs> yeah, hey, that's true. You know, but in the, in the past, I would just travel all, all the time. Um, being able to kind of talk about bartending and spreading the word and love that way. But it's certainly, uh, certainly different, but I do miss it. It does seem that everyone is now moving into the virtual world because of the COVID situation. We've had a number of webinars going on. What are some of the things that you and Leander are doing um, for your bar and, and also maybe for the community? Um, yeah, so at my bar, we are, um, I mean, gosh, there's like so many different things. So we have, um, well, so we shut down like three days before our governor said you have to shut down. Um, and the first thing we did was try to um, support our staff. So we have about 24, 25 people that work for us. And in those numbers, not everyone is documented, first of all. Um, and also, we have people who are like documented on green cards. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but like unemployment wasn't ha happening for anybody. So we immediately set up a GoFundMe for our employees. Um, and we're trying to get, gather money just to pay people who don't have any income right now. Um, additionally, you know, to try to make the business money, which in the end of the day is just going to go and pay our employees anyway. Uh, 
we are doing what we're calling contactless cocktails. So basically I made a website and it's weird, right? Because I am in, um, Brooklyn or I'm in New York and my bar is in Brooklyn and I'm sitting here like I can't go and batch my cocktails. I can't go do this. I'm kind of, I'm ha very happy to be away from there because it is such a hot spot. But at the same time, my business partners are there. So I'm developing cocktail creations here in Vermont, sending them to my business partners there. I'm making a website so people can order drinks online. I'm like processing credit card fees. I'm doing all these different things. And then my business partners are doing the batching and then selling the drinks twice a week. Um, wow. So it's been super bizarre, super, super bizarre, but it's been also very, very rewarding. And, um, you know, hopefully we get through it, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you've got a very good system in play. Um, one of the things I'm always interested in, I'm, I'm from the UK, but I do follow politics around the world just to see what's going on. But, um, the political situation in America seems to be under quite a lot of unrest because, there's a lot of debate whether states should reopen now or not. And personally, I think we still need to wait quite a while until we're very sure. Yeah. I know the state of New York has things under wraps a bit more maybe compared to other states. Would that be correct to say? Oh, God. Under wraps? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I well, I got that wrong then. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think that we are... Um... No, I don't. Um I think that we, I think that Cuomo is, is really doing a good job, our governor, but I don't think that we're exactly, I mean, we had the biggest outbreak in the entire country in New York. So the return, our return, my bar's return to normalcy is many months, many, many, many months away. I would say at least, at least 12 months. Are people following the rules where you are? I know in some states there's been a bit of protesting going on about, about opening up again. Yeah, for the most part, people are, are, are following the rules. There's definitely some anxiety and antsiness that I can see from far away. of People, you know, wanting more, um, people wanting more money and they want to work more and people are upset that they can't work. Um, it's also getting nicer and nicer. It's such a, such a pity that you know new york is a beautiful awesome place but like the weather sucks there for nine out of the 12 months every year <laughs> this is the most beautiful time of the year and we all have to be stuck inside or not even there it's just like ugh, it's brutal <laughs> yeah for sure well i mean we could talk for for a long time about covid but let's uh, let's stay yeah. on something lighter so there's um we're all stuck at home there's now a resounding amount of uh online resources for us to look at what what are some of the things that you're you're tapping into right now maybe any series or webinars that, that you can recommend our listeners to view i just happened to do the hospo live um on facebook uh which was great i'm actually i don't really use facebook anymore but i went on it to do this and it has a massive european following and just starting to break in over here in the states um but they have so much informational educational stuff it's all free um it's also it's like some of it's fun, which is really good. Um, it's not all like solemn and sad. Um, there's something called Skillshare. That's uh, I imagine you can get it everywhere, but it's here based in the States and you can kind of like go on and find classes that are really great. 
Um, my business partner in Speed Rack, the uh, female bartending competition that I put on, um, Lynette Marrero, she actually just did the master class for cocktails with Ryan Shetty from Dandelion and Mr. Ryan, et cetera. So that's massive um, and super educational. He's doing a little bit more of like the you know, advanced stuff, but Lynette's focusing in on like, if you don't know anything, like here, this is how you make a martini. So that's really great. Um, and then I've just been like following, I mean, I've been doing a lot of not necessarily cocktail related stuff, but I've been very much involved with kind of the governmental and, um, yeah, like governmental issues in the States and how to protect bars going forward. So, I'm doing a lot of stuff with the independent restaurant coalition and, um, a thing called New York hospitality coalition, um, trying to educate myself on the legalities of what's happening regarding money in this country. Um, and then trying to spread the word to people who, you know, haven't been nominated for James Beard or don't know what tales of the cocktail is, you know, people who, like the Indian restaurant on my corner that doesn't know what the hell's going on. Um, so that's how I've been spending lots of my time. Okay. Okay. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Can you tell us about maybe some of the things you've learned about during your time into this? Yeah. So, I mean, it's different everywhere, you know, um, in the States, it's very, it's a big thing, but in the States we had the payment protection program that was supposed to go through and aid businesses, um, essentially to get everyone off, um, unemployment. We have 24 million people on unemployment right now, I believe. Um, it's insane. We never had that. Much. It's like, it's, it's unfathomable, but the payment protection program called the PPP doesn't help bars and restaurants because part of the con- contingency of it all is that you have to hire back a hundred percent of your employees, um, which by June 30th, by the way, um, and there's no way that we're going to be open in June 30th. Like, so, I mean, maybe, but I would say it's very, very unlikely. And if we are open on June 30th, I would say that we will have 25% of our staff back. Um, so it is very, tricky. Um, so I've just been trying to figure out how to fight for what we're calling a stabilization fund, which is essentially a bailout to the restaurant and bar industry. That's my goal to get like, this is not a loan. This is not something you have to pay back. Here is billions of dollars to help our industry in this country. Because the fact of the matter is we're the cultural underweaving what keeps this country alive and we're already suffering because every mom and pop bar is being purchased and being turned into a McDonald's or being turned into a Chase Bank or a Starbucks and it's just really important to try to save small businesses so that's why I've been dedicating my time to. It sounds like a phenomenal amount of money that's needed to to help support the industry here. Yes, it's a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah, but you know what? They have it. They gave billions to the airline industry, so my guess is they can give billions to us as well. And, and how can other people get involved? What can people like me do to, to help support? Yes, so follow Independent Restaurant Coalition on Instagram and Twitter. Also, uh, go to saverestaurants.com and get information on that. Um, you can find your local coalitions in any country, let alone any state in the United States have coalitions that you can help. 
Um, and these will help businesses stay afloat, but there's also opportunities to help just individuals who are working, um, who don't have jobs anymore. So there's one called uh, Roar. So Roar.org, R-O-A-R. There's um, Restaurant Workers Federation, um, which is very good uh, in the States. There's another round, another rally. Um, these are all organizations that if you're a bartender or a cook or a cocktail waitress or a waiter or a barback, you can go and apply there for funds because you don't have anything coming in. Brilliant. Yeah. And I'm going to change the subject to uh, to Speedrack because you mentioned it earlier with, yeah. with Lynette. Uh, we actually had uh, Millie Tang on, the Australian winner, uh, who was quite recently last year, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's great. She won Australia. Yeah, she's a great girl and uh, it was really good to chat to her. So people can go back to episode one to listen to that. But it'd be really cool for our audience to hear about Speedrack and hear how you got started and what the general story was behind that. Yeah, so we started Speedrack in 2011. Um, we started it because basically I was trying to work my way up the bar scene in New York City, but was essentially told that I couldn't um, because I uh, was a cocktail waitress. I'm like, I want to be a bartender. And people were like, no, you're a cocktail waitress. And I was like, well, Jesus. <laughs> like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And this when, you know, bar like mixology wasn't kind of a buzzword at that time. It was a cool word. Everyone cocktail bar was synonymous with speakeasy and everyone was trying to be Jerry Thomas in like a in a secret door with a code, right? Um and the image in that time was like if you were a bartender, you had the big mustache, you had the suspenders, you had all these things, and the image was of a man, not of a woman. So that really pissed me off. Uh, I kept on going to the quote unquote best bars in the world, which, you know, I use that term extremely lightly because I think it's basically just a big male run and male awarded organization. But um, they, you went to these best bars and there were no women in them. And you'd ask, why don't you have any women working for you? And they'd say, we don't know any. And I would be like, well, I'm one. So you could hire me. And they'd be like, oh, you know, there's no openings. Nah. So everyone always had an excuse. So, I um, spoke with Lynette, who was very established already at that point. She was the brand ambassador for Zacapa Rum in the States. And she also um, was organizing some female-led opportunities in, in New York. And I was like, hey, I have this idea. I want to start this thing called Speed Rack. It's an all-female bartending competition. And it's, I want to have proceeds go to breast cancer charities because I think people will pay to come. And we can have the brand sponsor to cover the cost of the event. I'm like, and I want to create a platform for women to stand on on a male-dominated industry to be like, hey, we're here. You should hire us because we're just as good as that guy. Um, and that was 10 years ago uh, in June. Yeah. 10 years. Pretty crazy. Wow. Congratulations yeah. for the decade. Um, what's been yeah. your fondest memory over the period? I mean, it changes all the time. One of the things that I find the most gratification in is, you know, speed arc has changed since we started it. Now you do see some women in the best bars in the world and you see women running them, you know? So you have notable women everywhere. Whereas before people were like, mm, I don't know, like, is there any? So I think that I don't, I'm not sure if speed rack did that, but I think that speed rack helped. Um, but now speed rack has kind of changed into a, like, um, 
you know, uh, like a sisterhood for lack of a better word. And now, especially in crazy times like this, like the COVID situation that we're going through, we just, every day I'm on many different threads and group chats, um, of speed rack competitors reaching out to one another and creating a support system. So it's really invaluable. And like women are women and, and we have an easier time talking about things than sometimes men and women or men, women, and other, or what have you. And, having real honest conversations like, Hey, I got offered this job for this much money. What do you think? And everyone can chime in and be like, yes, no, maybe this is how much I got my job. And it's, it's really spectacular to be able to see that. So I don't think I have one secure singular memory, but just how speedrack has evolved and um, what it does for women now, I think is just really fantastic. And that continues to do it for women, even though we're not doing the competitions right now. I love that. It sounds very community driven. And another thing I'm excited to talk about today uh, is your book, which is coming out, Spirits of Latin America, which I I spent a bit of time reading today. And it's such a beautiful book. The the photography alone is stunning. Um, Let's let's talk about the story. When when did you decide to to say, hey, I'm going to write a book? Well, um, it's funny. Um, I opened up Leyenda and you know, we were open for like two years and, I, and, you know, ask anyone who's opened a bar, it just, it's like, you don't wish it upon your worst enemy. It's so hard. But after, after two years, you're like, Hmm, this seems like it's going to make it. Um, what's next? So I really started to realize that Latin spirits were trending, you know, tequila, more and more popular. Um, Leyenda as a concept was really interesting and people I could see at the bar, learning about things I would never have known about otherwise. Right. So like, what is Pisco? I don't know. Like what really Chile and Peru both have a Pisco. Why is that? Um, and I found opportunities kind of using tequila as like, for lack of a better word, like the gateway drug, cause everyone knows it. Like Patron is cool, but people would be like looking for good tequila and then they'd learn about something else. So I was like, well, I could make this reach a lot broader than just my 55 seat bar in Brooklyn. You know, um, so I started thinking about wanting to do something, but to be, it was always kind of just in the back burner, but what really happened is I was approached by a publishing house, um, to write the book. Um, so they, I, this wonderful woman named Emily Timberlake who worked for 10 speeds press was like, Hey, I think you should write a book. She just wrote me an email and I was like, okay, <laughs> what about, and she was like, well, what do you want to write about? And I was like, well, I can tell you, I don't want to write about, what it's like to be a woman in the industry. Like my, you know, what was starting speed rack lots of times I'm only talking about women's issues, which I'm very passionate about. Don't get me wrong. But I was like, I don't want to write a book about that. I want to write a book about Latin spirits. Like that's, I'm very passionate about it. I'm very proud of my cocktails and I would like someone to read it. So she was like, great idea. So that's how it started. Um, And that was, God, I don't even know when we first started talking. I think that was three years ago. It took a while to get a proposal together for the book. I got an advance. It wasn't very much. Um, And part of the book deal was like, well, I'm going to travel to all these different places with the photographer who you mentioned. Um, She's so fantastic. Shannon Sturgis is just phenomenal. Um, And yeah, so I was like, okay, well, let's let's do this. Let's get, I'm like, I can't pay you much, but I can take you on a trip of a lifetime. (laughs) So 
Shannon, myself, and then my friend James Carpenter, um, who's actually a writer, he kind of, he helped me tailor the book. Um, so the three of us went on a basically four and a half month escapade through Latin America, um, learning and writing and it was, and, and photographing. And it was insane. I mean, it was very hard. Writing a book is very hard. Writing it's the fun part, I will say. Editing it is like slowly killing off your children, I think. It's like, <laughs> it's so, it's like, not that paragraph. I really like that paragraph. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and reading it, there's, there's definitely a lot of personal parts to it. And I think it, it definitely goes in depth um, in places mm. it should. One part that stuck out for me was um, you were in Peru. And you panic a group of farmers about a land dispute. Yeah. Tell us oh about my that. God. Th- thank you for picking that part out because they actually, my editor wanted to cut that whole, that section was very long and then we had to cut it down to something that's not that long. No yeah. Way. And it was a crazy time. So basically, we went to Peru um, and my. The, my host there, um, who owns Barcel Pisco, Diego, he was like, I want to go visit this coalition of farmers um, to see um, how they're doing. We can interview some of them and like talk to them about their grape production, et cetera, et cetera. So in Peru, there's this, this kind of, the problem is twofold. Problem number one, uh, um, communism in Latin America was massive. Um, in like the late middle of the last century. Um, and the problems with that were land was taken away from people and given to a bunch of people who didn't have that much money, which actually is a good thing. Right. Um, but there's all these problems that happened because of socialism and communism within central South America. Um, fast forward, the, people who've been farming this land for the better part of the last 70 years or what have you, um, all of a sudden the land trusts are up, right? So these people who used to own this land many, many, many years ago, like the the offspring of these people are like, actually that land is my land. Um, And there's a face-off between these poor farmers on this land that don't have anything and these rich, usually politically connected people coming in and trying to take this land back. And what they've started to do, and the reason why the, the, all these people like ambushed us when we walked onto their farm, was because people have been coming in, like strong-arming these communities and stealing their grapes, which are their livelihood, right? So coming in and stealing it to try to make them all go under. So we ended up having this insane conversation um, with these this community, because I was like, well, what were they like, screaming at me when I walked up and I was like, what? Cause I actually got pretty car sick is the reason why I got out of the car early. <laughs> so I got out of the car and I was like, I have to get some air. Um, and they all came up they're like, who are, and, you know, they had like machetes behind their backs and they were like, what are you doing here? And like, thank God I speak Spanish because I could be like, no, no, no. I'm with Diego from Barcelona Pisco. And they were like, what? I'm like, Diego. And like, where is he? And I was like, he's right down there uh, like everything's going to be okay. And I was like, what's happening? And Diego filled me out the whole story. Um, so that's like one portion of the problem. The other portion of the problem is that they're doing two different types of grapes. Table grapes are very, um, much more valuable, but they have to be perfect. Um, and then Pisco grapes aren't as valuable, but they can be a little bit less perfect. So people are coming in and stealing different types of grapes and then damaging the table grapes as well. So they can't be sold. It's, 
crazy. And like, of course it's the little guy that's getting screwed, right? Like, of course it is. It's, it's really, it's crazy. Is there going to be a resolution to that? Do you think? I need to talk to Diego. The thing that's also kind of hard is that there's no, um, uh, what's the word in Spanish is consejo, um, uh, like advisory board. There's no advisory board for Pisco, proving Pisco, which is very difficult. Um, so people just aren't agreeing and there's no committee to kind of oversee anything. So until that comes together, I think it will be very hard to protect these people. But I mean, I'll send you a photo if I can dig it up. Shannon took this beautiful photo that didn't end up making in the book of a cot folded up next to grape fields because people are sleeping there at night, protecting their livelihood. My God. Wow. It's, it's a different world for some people. Yeah. Yeah, um, So the book is great. And it's separated to three sections. You've got agave, sugarcane, and grape. Yeah. And it talks about the production and the history. And there's also quite a few cocktail yeah. recipes. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the cocktails I picked out was the Palo Negroni. Yeah, the Palo Negro, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, if, that, if I was in a bar and that was on the menu, that's what I'd go for, <laughs> for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I see there's a lot of similarity with the cocktails in your bar. And I see there's a bit of a flow with with uh, a lot of cocktails having a number of spirits used at once so tequilas with a couple of rums and i think a lot of bartenders shy away from that but but actually multiple spirits can work i think so i mean at leyenda we are big fans of splitting our bases is what we always say um one of the reasons why is that you know when we opened up leyenda i told everyone who was on the opening staff i was like listen this is not a bar where we're selling whiskey and gin. We're not making martinis and old fashions. We're making drinks and serving types of spirits and alcohol that people may have never heard of, let alone be able to pronounce. So we need to be able to not make them feel like idiots for asking what it is and also give them kind of an, a reason to look at a menu and feel comfortable ordering something on that menu. So Someone might not know what Sotol is, right? The Mexican distillate that come, that is made out of an evergreen similar to Mezcal. Like someone might not know what Sotol is, but they certainly probably know what, you know, cognac is, right? So if we do a Sotol cognac cocktail and there's people know what cognac is, they may not know what Sotol is, but they know what vermouth is and they know what lemon is and they know what chamomile is. I'm just, this drink doesn't exist. I'm just throwing it out there, but you know. <laughs> But but, they, but then they might order that drink because, ooh, I like cognac, I like chamomile, I, make, I like lemon. I'm too embarrassed to ask what Sotol is, but I'll try this drink because I like those other three out of four check out. And then what we found was that people would start asking about Sotol, you know? Okay, well, what is this thing? So then we also we got to educate people on what that thing was through this technique. So most of the, I would say most of the drinks in the, in the book are split base. Um, which good, good observation. I have actually never thought that, about that before, but it is, um, it is certainly a way that we found we can get people to be more comfortable breaking out of their comfort zones. Yeah. Great. And, and I feel this is what we've been doing a lot as bartenders over the last decade, getting people out of their comfort zones and yeah. teaching them about these often unique spirits. What is your blueprint or process to making cocktails? Yeah, so it's funny that you picked up the Palo Negro because that drink is actually um, a drink that I 
broke, I break down the creation of that drink. So I did a Skillshare that, um, that education platform that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. I did one and I talk about cocktail creation using the Palo Negro as like, as an example of how oh, I great. go about cocktail okay. creation. <laughs> so, um, so people should watch it, but basically I think about, um, when I make drinks, I start with the spirit themselves, um, as the, as the thing that I'm thinking about, or if it's not the spirit, which usually it is, but like if I'm making a non-alc drink, I think about a flavor that I want to capture. So I don't be like strawberries. I think to myself, like, what does strawberries taste like? And it's really like an exercise of providing words for flavors. It's almost like describing words for colors. Like there's not just green, there's a bunch of green. So like, let's break that down. Um, and I do this for the, whatever my idea is. And then usually I try to have another thing as well. Like, and sometimes I try to make them really, really different. Right. So, uh, in the Palo Negro, I was like, okay, I have this Reposado tequila that was like a base. And I also had this Palo Cortado sherry. So I broke down what these things tasted like tasting notes. And then I tried to create a bridge in between them. Right. So what's the bridge that I can connect this, like if you've ever done the thought exercise where you create like a thought bubble and you like outsource different things out of those bubbles. Uh So it kind of looks like a big, like, you know, spider or whatever. Um, So I do that. And then I try to figure out a way to get these words to connect. So it's like, okay, I think Reposado tequila tastes like, you know, um, apples and, caramel and dirt and minerals and like there's no wrong answer which is the beauty of it and then Paulo and then Paulo Cortado sherry tastes like musty and sweet and raisins and you know so on so forth and to me the connecting factor of those two things was a blackstrap rum which is super molassesy very unctuous you know um and that kind of got the funk of both of these things together, the earthiness. Um, and then I did a little bit of Grand Marnier in there as well to bring out the citrus and the floral notes of the tequila. Um, so it's kind of like I Mr. Potato had my way to a cocktail. I'm like, oh, plug that in, plug that in, plug that in. Um, but it all has to do with tasting notes, which is fun. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, cocktails are fun. It's a creative process. And one thing I've no- I really like and really love yeah. you used is Palo Cortado because I love sherry and Palo Cortado is always that bottle on the back, which no one really bothers to use. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. It's definitely, unfortunately, my days, I used to know so much about sherry and then now it's all kind of gone by the wayside. But Palo Cortado it, and the whole, whole sherry process is unbelievable. And, you know, originally Palo Cortado was meant to be this like fluke, like it's called Palo Cortado means cut lines. So when they do sherry on the casks, they make these different lines and, and uh, marks to signify which way the sherry is going based on the floor and how much oxidation is in it and what have you. Um, and it used to be Palo Cortado. I was like, well, this is going to be a Palo Cortado. Oh, it's going to go its own way. It's created its own life. And now, of course, Palo Cortado is like manufactured um, by brands. But it is super delicious. <laughs> it's really- it is. Yeah, I've, I've been here and I love the fact that, you know, 10 a.m. You've got these little old men drinking sherry in the little uh, sherry shops. <laughs> this one is why I love Spain so much. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, about the book, the, the launch date is going to be May, right? Yep. May 26th. 
Great. And can we pre-order it? You can. Yeah. So Amazon is the easiest way, especially internationally, to order it. Um, just put into the search engine Spirits of Latin America, um, Ivy Mix, and I will come up. Um, you can, If you go to my profile um, on Instagram, at Ivy Mix, um, you can find it there, or my website, ivymix.com. Um, all those places will have it. If you, if you have the capability, especially in times like this, um, where small businesses are failing, I'm just really trying to encourage people to support their, their local small independent bookstore and try to get them to order it. (laughs) Um, so if you can do that, try that first, if not go to Amazon, but Amazon has made $24 billion this month. So I don't think they really need well, that's brilliant, and all of it is going to be in the show notes for people to read. Um, what would you say is one takeaway that everyone will get from reading the book? I think that if you read the book, you will really understand the cultural significance of the spirits themselves. Like, this book is equal parts armchair traveler and history session on top of the cocktails, right? So, not only will you understand, co- like, why. I make my cocktails the way I do um, and the stories behind them, but you're fundamentally and probably more importantly, really learn a lot about what these spirits are and why they're so important um, to the cultures they represent. And that's a really important thing to do right now when the whole world seems to be kind of terrified of who the other people are. Um, So yeah, if you want to learn about different cultures and the delicious things that they drink, um, you should get it. Well, you know, I've read a part of it and I can't wait to read the rest. So, yeah, I'm very excited for it. Thank you. We're going to wrap up very soon. But um, what is the plans for the rest of the year? What, what have you got in store? Oh, God. I mean, honestly, I had a bunch of plans before and now I don't know. Um, Speed Rack was supposed to go all to Europe for the first time, to Argentina for the first time. We were supposed to go back to Mexico and back to Asia and back to Australia and do our 10th season tour of the United States. I don't know what's happening with any of that right now. Um, I was supposed to have my book launch and a book tour. I don't know what's happening with that right now. Um, I, you know, was kind of fantasizing about opening up a new spot. Definitely don't think that's going to happen right now. Um, so honestly, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm in Vermont. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. Um, And I'm just kind of dedicating my efforts and my attention for the rest of the year to keeping my business afloat and trying to help other people keep their businesses afloat. And then I really hope that there's a vaccine soon. And when that happens, I will be going on a book tour. (laughs) Great. And um, we, you know, we wish you all the best for the rest of the year and all luck. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ivy. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's everything from me, guys. I hope you really enjoyed the show with Ivy. Uh, please go and check out the book. You can pre-order now through Amazon. And I really think it's worth a check because the recipes are fantastic and you'll probably learn a lot of history that you didn't know. So please get involved, guys. Give us a like, subscribe, and join the community on Patreon because we're really trying to build our own tribe. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and also Gastronomer Lifestyle website. And that's pretty much it. So have a check out next week and please listen for Monday.